Well, good evening, everyone. Nice to see you. It's nice to be here uh, preaching to you. And I remember for many years, night church uh, for our family. I remember um, after a full day of Bible study, catechism, uh, reformation work, people for lunch, Bible study. So about eight hours of church. We'd come to night church and dad would go, I hope you're ready for business. Do business with the Lord tonight. I hope you're ready. And so I guess my challenge to you tonight, I hope you're ready to do business with the Lord because this is not a a trifling text, I'm sorry. It's not a a feel-good story. Um, However, the Word of God has something for us. And so we're going to open it up. Let me just tell you a bit of background about a Reformation Sunday. And I do thank uh, Robin for the privilege of speaking on this day. Uh, Reformation Sunday, 506 years ago, uh, what actually happened? Well, Martin Luther... Uh, was so uh, appalled with Pope Leo X's new round of indulgences. So indulgences, the payment uh, for the right to get rid of your sin. Uh, Well, they needed money to build St. Peter's Basilica. What's the best way to fund it? You poke people in their guilty spots and then you charge them uh, some money and say, well, that'll do away with your sin for a week and come back next week and we'll do it again. It built a beautiful church. Uh, Unfortunately, it also... Uh, created a church full of fear and full of guilt and full of shame. And uh, incensed, he wrote his 95 Thesis. 95 Thesis is just 95 things, 95 problems you have with the Catholic Church. Now, you've got to understand the Catholic Church controlled all all of the known part of Europe. They had total control of everything. So it's a fairly brave move. Well, they responded, of course, by excommunicating him and he had to escape uh, and off he went. Um, but of course, moved by the Holy Spirit, he actually stood for biblical truth and he and he preached where he could in Geneva and other places um, because he actually believed in the three solas, uh, faith alone, scripture alone and grace alone, whereas the Catholic Church believed uh, in scripture, tradition and the power of the Pope. In fact, the authority of the Pope, who when he spoke in cathedra, which is the idea of when he spoke as the Pope, he could say no wrong. And Luther and his mates uh, had a problem with that and they spoke up. And he went about preaching and, of course, some wonderful people followed him. People like Zwingli out of Switzerland, Knox, the founder of the Prezi Church, and, of course, John Calvin, uh, who wrote his institutes, which have been significant ever since. So today we celebrate that moment, which actually particularly started the English or the the English Protestant Reformation, uh, of which the Anglican Church uh, is an outworking of that. So here we are. Um, and rightly, we take a moment to celebrate it. And Robin said, look, not only can you speak on this day, which is a privilege, but can you talk on confession and perhaps share a little bit of the difference between uh, Roman Catholic confession and our confession? Well, here we go. Uh, and so Psalm 32 is where we've landed, and I want to just take us through that. And I thought I might just ask the same questions this morning. Often, perhaps as much as for my own benefit as anyone else, I change my illustrations and stories. But I asked this morning... Um, how many people uh, have played hide-and-seek? And I kind of assumed everyone had, but we actually split into two groups. Hand up if you, in hide-and-seek, absolutely love the hiding part. That's your favourite bit. You're the hider. That's your... Okay, interesting. Who likes the seeking part? All right, more than this morning. 100 people this morning is about four of us. It looks like about eight of us. Um, afterwards, let's have um, supper together because that's a personality type. Can I just tell you that? Uh, and so we'll, we'll, we'll have time together. Everyone else will, will look at us and stare. Well, hide and seek, that, that lovely, if you're little, that lovely feeling that you go and hide around and you wait in hiding to be what? 
Well, the interesting part about hide and seek, you do get found eventually. I don't play with uh, girls anymore because they're older and they just leave me hidden, right? I'll just be there all day. Uh, so I'm left to play with my spoodle now. Um, I go and hide, I whistle, and she comes and finds me. That's uh, it's a little bit sad, but that's where, that's where life has landed me now. Uh, so that feeling of waiting to be found can be quite nerve-wracking, can't it? It can be quite, oh, no, here they come, footstep, foot, oh, gone. And so tonight, uh, I want to have a little look at hiding as an illustration and see what we can learn about what it means to come before our God and confess. Why don't we lay the foundation Because by praying because God's going to do the work. Thank you for this evening, God. Thank you for the beautiful day you've blessed us with. However it is that we've arrived here this evening, whatever mood, whatever feelings, whatever tone, whatever physical state, thank you uh, that you know it. You know it inside out. And thank you, we, we are not alone, we're here together, and we get to share in this unique way of opening up your Bible. And God, we want it to change us individually, and thank you, we get to share in that together. Amen. Amen. Well, of all the truths uh, of the Reformation, the idea of uh, confession is an interesting one, and I want to start by, by just putting it in context. When I was talking to um, the 8 o'clock service this morning, uh, there was a centurion over there, Daphne, lovely lady. When uh, I'm preaching to that group, 80 pluses mainly, and I talk about them feeling guilt and shame over their sin and confessing, they're all nodding going, yeah, get it. Yeah, totally. Why? They've been taught since very little. That's a long time ago, isn't it? 1923. Can you imagine being born then? So Daphne understands well as a five-year-old being taught in Sunday school the scriptures understanding what right and what wrong is. And she knew at the end of a hand or a stick or a strap, a number of those old people told me right and wrong because they go, oh, see, I knew what was wrong because a strap was wrapped around my bottom. That's when I knew it was wrong. The interesting part is I look across a number of faces here, culturally, even though many of you have grown up in the church, a number of your peers, a number of your contemporaries, a number of the people your age, the idea of feeling guilty the idea of shame, the idea that there's that, that right and wrong is not made up by me, I want to put to you, that's a different group of people. Well, how do I know that? Well, I work in a school. I've got almost 2,000 children uh, in, in the schools that I, I'm, I oversee, and I teach Year 12 Bible um, at the moment. I just finished with one group, and I just started another group. And when I talk to them and I talk about Jesus and he, he releases us from guilt and shame, I learned very quickly I have to start changing my language. Because 90% of the people in front of me are non-church, non-Christian, non-religious background. And they look going, guilt and shame. Why would I feel guilty about the decisions I've made? Because I'm never wrong. You've got this metric, Middleton, of right and wrong. <laughs> old man, that's archaic. There is no right and wrong. Right's what I want to do. Wrong is what you do. That, can I say, is a different cultural construct. And to be evangelists in this culture, we actually need to come to terms with that. So we're going to do two things. While we're working our way through the text, I actually want you to ponder that because that supper conversation and Bible study tomorrow night, we're going to dig into that. Uh, and you know I'm coming for you, you know me. Uh, so make sure you've thought that through. Let's look at the text. Let's open it up. Psalm verse 30, Psalm, uh, 32. Psalm of David, as Craig said, masculine. There's about 12 of them uh, in the Psalms. And they're all designed with emphasis to teach something significant. And so David obviously had something significant he wanted to teach here. Many people argue chronologically it came after Psalm 51. And Psalm 51, of course, is David's great lament over his sin with Bathsheba and then killing Uriah. Um, and so let's get into the text. You'll notice Cyrus put up on the screen first, there's three headings. Old habits die hard. Uh, there's three neat headings for you. We're going to work our way through those. So let's have a look. Let's have a look at Psalm, at Psalm 32. 
when we sin and when we fail and when we, 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 we mess it up badly, um, what do we do? How do we talk to our Creator God and how do we recover? And I want to start by uh, offending you right off the bat. I actually think we do this too lightly as a culture, as a Christian culture. We take confession far too lightly. Let me tell you how it goes. Dear Lord, forgive me today for being naughty. Forgive me for being disobedient. And then on we go from there to our long list of things we need. I hear that a lot. I'm in a Christian school. We pray a lot in Christian schools. I hear lots of prayers. I'm not judging others' prayers. I'm as guilty as anyone. We take it too lightly. And so biblically, what do we actually do when we fail to meet God's commands? How, how do we do it? Well, David gives us a pattern in Psalm chapter 32 because he sinned and he wants to get right with God. And he wants to confess that. I just want to point out the intimacy of his language here is actually quite moving. So let's have a look. First one. Blessed is the one whose transgressions are forgiven. Now, straight away, we notice who's blessed, the righteous, the godly, the holy, the obedient. No, no. Those, who's blessed? Sinners who know they've been forgiven. That's who's blessed. Isn't that an amazing way to start a, a psalm? The blessed are those who understand they've been forgiven. Now, that word blessed is interesting. The idea is the absolute pinnacle of existence. Spurgeon, a name you might be familiar with, amazing preacher, he said it's double joy, a fullness of joy and overbubbling of joy when we know we're at peace and we're in relationship and we feel secure. We get glimpses of it, don't we, from time to time in our life. Double joy, double joy is knowing that you're wretched and you've been forgiven. And right there is we're right at the heart of the gospel, aren't we? We've been forgiven from our sin. But notice, we actually need to understand we've sinned in the first place. So what David's starting with, he's saying those who are most alive, those who are most fulfilled are those who understand the extent of their own sin and they really understand forgiveness. So that's what he's going to unpack right through Psalm 32. He goes on, verse 1, and he says, whose sin is covered. Notice that here that it's not hidden. It's not hidden, sorry, by the sinner. It's actually covered by somebody else. The sin here is covered. It's an action taken by somebody else to cover it over. Now let's go to Adam and Eve. What did they do in the garden when they, when they first sinned? They did two actions. Do you remember what they were? They hid. What else did they do? Cover themselves. Why, why, why do you hide from an omniscient, omnipresent God? Guilt and shame. Wouldn't hiding be enough? Why do they cover themselves? They cover themselves. They've already hidden from God. The covering is actually about them, isn't it? The covering of fig leaves is actually about them. They, they try and cover themselves over because they know their state. They know their sin. God gave them the understanding when they've sinned to realize they've broken God's command. So they went and hid and they felt ashamed. I want to say tonight, I think everyone in the end actually does struggle with guilt and with shame. But in this culture, we use our own fig leaves to try and cover it over. How do we cover our shame in this culture? Money, the way we dress, the way we present our life, both externally and in social media, perhaps. The false images of ourselves, the lies we tell, the beautiful homes. Might I point out good etiquette, good manners? These all can be the fig leaves of our culture that hide 
the actual who I am, the guilt and the shame of who I am. And I dress it up so no one knows it. And I go about my life and I go to my workplace, my school, my church, and I hide the fact that I'm actually riddled with guilt and shame because the condition culturally, we actually all have that. We just find ways to conceal it. The trouble is our fig leaves are about as effective as Adam and Eve's. Oh, we, we deceive ourselves. We pretend that they do the job, but they're no more useful than hiding from God with a set of leaves. And David is saying here, blessed is the one who has that guilt and shame covered, he says. He's actually saying something significant about a holy God. Because our God we know hates sin and he can't stand to see it or view it. So it's hidden. God doesn't take the sin and dwell on it. God can't stand sin. So it's hidden. Let's explore that further. Let's go to verse 2. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord does not count against them. Again, the language of double joy, the blessing we receive when sin's not counted against my ledger. I flick up Andrew Middleton in God's scroll and there's no marks against it. That's extraordinary. No marks, not counted against it, God says. So what happened to it? Well, if God can't stand sin and it's now hidden and not counted against me, where'd it go? Well, you know the answer to that. It's the second guess you'd have after God. Jesus is where the answer, because God takes it and he smears that filth on his son. He spreads it all over him and then he allows his son to die. He allows his son to take that punishment for us. David goes on in verse 3 and 4 and he says, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning. David's actually saying here, when I pretend like there's nothing wrong, notice the word silence there, when I pretend, and isn't this culturally relevant, when I pretend nothing's wrong, what happens? My bones waste through my groaning. How often do we pretend there is nothing wrong? And we do one other cultural thing too. I call it the Saddam Hussein principle. I'm not as bad as him. He did more damage, I think, to sanctification, becoming more godly, because we had someone to go, well, you know what, I haven't had a good week this week, but I'm not a terrorist who's destroyed the world, so I'm okay. I'm a little bit better than him, so I'm all right. It's human nature. If I don't want to compare myself to any standard, I just pick someone to go, I'm better than him. We actually see it right through the pages of Scripture. And David's saying, the second half here, your hand was heavy on me and my strength was sapped. The mantra of not admitting sin, of silence, is actually one that's been with us forever. I just think culturally, the young people I deal with every day, their language is by redefining what wrong is. Their silence is not admitting their sin. They just say, well, it's not sin. It's not sin to me. Sin, of course, missing the mark, the idea of not keeping God's standard. So then confession is going to be countercultural. What we're going to do in the next little while by looking at verse 5 is going to be very countercultural. So let's have a look at these headings. There's four things here in verse 5 I want to look at. How do we actually confess? What's it look like? And I want to be a bit edgy by telling you I think there's a right and a wrong way. And I think most of us get it wrong. Let me see if I can let me see if I can prove that to you. If not, I'll look forward to the argument afterwards. Number one, verse five. I then acknowledged my sin to you. Look at the personal pronouns. I acknowledged my sin to you. Where's the we and the they of our culture? Well, we all did it together. No, no, they did it. 
Those excuses, David, first point of a great confession is it only has me in it. It's not, Lord, I did it, but he made me. I did it, but it's the parents he gave me. I did it, but, you know, I don't have a lot of money. No, no, he says, acknowledge your sin, I, my. It actually sounds easy and straightforward, but, but let's look a little closer. How do we actually know what sin is and what to confess? Because I want to put to you tonight, I think our personality often drives our confessional practices. Those who are plagued by guilt, those who feel guilty all the time, your confession is going to sound like that. It, you, you often, I suspect, that group of people, you, you pretty much take responsibility for everything in the world. You blame yourself for everything. Let's go to the other end of the spectrum, right? Those who never get anything wrong, your confession's quick. Sorry, Lord. I'm sorry I'm surrounded by idiots. That's a quick confession, isn't it? It wasn't me. It was everyone else. Our personality drive. Can I give you an example? Uh, I remember giving a direction. I was a young principal. I was 30. I had like 70 or 80 staff. I remember I said to them, look, some of you aren't getting your programs in on time and some of you don't turn up on time to meetings. I want you to fix that, right? You know, I think I punched something or I, don't know, I looked aggressive. Do you know what happened? The people who always had their programs in on time were always early for the meeting. They came to me afterwards and said, sorry, Andrew, I'm really sorry. Uh, I'll make sure those programs are there earlier. And by the way, I'll be 10 minutes early next time, not five minutes early. I thought, that's odd. You're always on time. Why are you telling me? How about the group who are always late? Oh, they left the building. <laughs> they didn't hang around at all. They just left. What about their programs on time? They just went to each other. Not talking to me. See, personality, I think, can drive our confessional practice. How do I go about acknowledging my sin if I'm always wrong? But how do I acknowledge my sin if I'm never wrong? And we're all somewhere in between. Do you know what the answer is? We actually test our feelings and our thoughts against God's standard. That's what we do. Contrary to our world, which says we, we, we look inside ourselves to find out what's right and wrong, we actually need to continue to learn what is right and wrong. Now, I know what you're thinking. That's the domain of little children. Teach little ones right and right and wrong. I'm telling you tonight, we need to continue to learn what is right and what is wrong. Because if you believe you have the ability to determine what is good and bad in every up and down of life, in every area of difficulty, in every challenge that you're confronted with, you'll know clearly what's good and what's bad, what's right and wrong. You are absolutely deceiving yourself. You bought that lie from Hollywood. Do you know what I'm actually saying? For those who drifted for a second, I'm saying your confession is tainted by sin. Your confessional practice is corrupted by the very thing you're confessing. Does that follow? Can, can you, can you um, conceive that that's possible? That you come before your God to confess your sin and even your confession is tainted. Why? Because we don't spend enough time putting our confession against the word of God. So I confess what I think is wrong. You confess what you think is wrong. Someone else confesses what they think is wrong. And now we're culturally in the right spot, aren't we? Everyone's just doing confessing what they think. No, no, we confess against the standard, which is the Scriptures. Because the, the Reformers had a lovely thought about confessing. They talked about the sins of commission, the things we do. And their prayer would say, Lord, show me what I've done. And then they had sins of omission. Lord, show me what I should have done when I didn't. It was a great prayer. We don't talk about it all that much. So the only real way we can confess is if we actually understand God's standard. And the only way we can acknowledge sin is to know that we are inherently evil without Jesus. Why don't you start with that bedrock? And then you say, Lord, can you show me 
what it is that's so offensive to your holy character. So that's the first one. That's acknowledge. Number two is we take responsibility. David says in verse 5 still, I did not cover up my iniquity. David didn't try to cover himself over or explain his actions or justify himself. And that's a key. That's the second key to confession. The confession is not linked to what everyone else did. Our confession is about me before my God. Even if we have been wronged, biblical confession is to own our part of it fully and stop focusing on the circumstances or the other people. Biblical confession is actually radical because it's radical ownership and me taking responsibility. It actually speaks right into the victim mentality of our culture, which says everyone's out to get me. I've been wronged. It's why those lawyer uh, adverts are so popular and seem to do very well because we've all been wronged, have we not? And the challenge is in, in, in biblical confession is we take responsibility for our bit. Now, every time I preach on, on this or speak on this now in mixed groups, I say I am not here talking about those involved in abusive situations. I think the church has, a, has, has some blood on its hands over the years for, for teaching, either not directly or incorrectly, that we are not teaching that you go quiet and you tolerate abuse of any kind. You speak up. You get help. We're here as an organisation, as a church, to support you. But quietly before your God, you own your part of it. Let's go to number three, God's perspective. This is a hard one. David says, I will confess my, my transgressions to the Lord. And do you know what the word confession means? It actually means saying the same thing. Confession means saying the same thing. Same thing as whom? The same thing as the other person. So biblical confession then is actually saying the same thing as a holy God. So confession, David's saying, I'll confess my transgressions to the Lord. He's actually saying here, I'm going to confess as if I'm in God's perspective. Now, that is actually something you're, you and I have to ask for. That's a gift. We're so tainted in our fallenness. We can never have God's perspective perfectly, so we actually need to ask for that perspective. Confession is only real if you can see something from the perspective of a holy God. So we're actually confessing to this God and we're understanding how offensive our conduct and our manner and our heart is before him and we need to approach God with this type of language. God, I can't imagine what it must feel like to be you. You created me. You created the world. You gave me life. You bless me every day. You give me all good things that I need. You keep blowing air into my lungs. And most of my daily life, I live as if you didn't even exist. God, help me to understand how disgusting and offensive and abhorrent that nature of mine actually is. Now, that's the start of a confession. That's the start of a confession that is saying, God, I'm actually not sure yet how offensive I am to you. I know in principle I am. Here's a dangerous prayer. God, show me, show me how far from your standard I am. That's a confessional prayer. And now the word sanctification in the old reformers is becoming more like God. And as we become more like God, our confession looks different because our confession sounds more like it's from a holy God. Let's look at the last one, grieving over sin. 
He says, you forgave the guilt of my sin. It's an interesting language, isn't it, in verse 5? You forgave the guilt of my sin. Uh, Godly confession actually then involves understanding the difference between guilt, uh, sorry, of grief and self-pity. And we actually need to genuinely grieve over our sin. I want to put to you tonight, the reason I raise it, we generally do something different to that. We actually grieve over the consequence of our sin. Do you hear the difference? I actually grieve over what my sin's done to my relationship. I grieve over what it's done to the mess it's made in my workplace or my family or to my future prospects or, does that make sense, to my physicality. David's saying, you forgave the guilt of my sin. And we actually, as we confess, we actually need to understand and hate the consequence, sure, but we're not confessing because the consequences are poor. You can actually retranslate that verse, the guilt of my sin, to the sin of my sin. You forgave me what? The sin of my sin, David's saying. What's the sin of my sin? Sin for its own entity, not the consequence of sin. We can we confess sin for the sake of the offence of sin to a holy God. We confess sin because of the horrible taste it leaves in the mouth of our Creator, and we need to ask God for His heart on it. But if you ask God to show His heart for sin, and you ask for that heart, be ready for Him to expose a number of things about yourself. That's godly confession. Now, did David know a thing or two about guilt? Well, of course he did. I mean, he took a man's wife and impregnated her and then killed him. In God's army, fighting God's battle, he got all the army to draw back to kill the husband of the woman he stole. He could have had anyone he liked and then used his army that he should have been leading. He knew a thing or two about guilt. And he says here, you forgave the guilt of my sin. You took away the guilt. That's incredible. I just want to share a little story. I have a a mentor called George. George is an older guy who I asked to be a mentor of mine as a principal because I want to be a better principal. And he's led multiple schools and and and, and we've been together 10 years now, actually. And people uh, now say to me, why, why, why is the old guy still around? Why, why, do you, why do you have him still as your mentor? You know how to run a school. You've, been, you've run multiple schools. How do you, why do you do it? I'll tell you why. Because having a godly person around who challenges you and who pushes you, we, we spend the first part of our meeting just praying. Just bringing before the Lord whatever it is on our heart. And do you know what happens to the long list I have of decisions I need to take? I can throw half of them out by the time we finish praying. Not because they're not significant, but I'm no longer nervous about them. Why? Because I'm standing before a holy God. Anyway, he arrived last week and I said to him, mate, how are you? What did you do on the drive down? And he said, well, I confessed for an hour and a half. I said, really? He said, yeah, I was confessing over my life and, I, and confessing to God all the ways that I've let him down. Now, this, this guy, right, has, has led schools, multiple schools, right? He's been overseas, led mission overseas. He, he was part of the Anglican Education Group that's spoken to lots of schools. He said, even the things I thought I'd done well, where I was honouring God, my preaching, my leading schools, I realised it was tainted by sin, so I was just confessing that to the Lord. And, it, and you see he'd been crying. See, the godly older men and women that I know, they have a heart to actually say, God, even the good bits, even the things that land on my resume, They're so tainted. Do you know how hard it is to stand and preach to you on this? Because I know even this, right, even my effort to share with you tonight is what? It's tainted. It's stained. It's stained by sin. Even the good bits. 
not trying to thoroughly depress you this evening, I, I promise. I know I am, but I'm not trying to. But let's get to the good bit, right? The consequence of actually dwelling on our wretchedness, look, look what it does. Come with me to our third point, and I've just, I've just called it joy. This is the consequence of biblical confession. I want to go to verse 7. Sarah, if you just want to flick that slide and go to verse 7 for me. You are my hiding place, he says in verse 7. You'll protect me from trouble and you'll surround me with songs of deliverance. How did we get here? How did we go from that to that? Let me explain it to you. And, and look at the language of hiding place. And I want to take us back to Adam and Eve. God, David's saying, is his hiding place. Well, what a contrast to Adam and Eve. Who, who are Adam and Eve hiding from? God. Who's David hiding in? God. You see, such David has such a grasp of who God is, which is miraculous, by the way. He hasn't seen Jesus yet, but he's got such a grasp that he says here, you are my hiding place. The holy, righteous God is the place I go and hide. Really? Isn't God disgusted by our sin? How do I get to hide in the very creator, the perfection of God. Well, we get to hide in him because of Jesus. We get to hide in him, as I got to explain to lots of people after church today, because when God looks at us, if we've repented and we love Jesus, he doesn't see me and my mess. He only sees white, and that's Jesus. And that's why David can pray in Psalm 51, make me as white as snow. Because part of good confessional practice means I actually get joy. Going right back to the verse, verse, I get double joy. Why? I realize what I'm saved from. I realize the extent to which I've been forgiven. So that idea of hiding, that idea of being tucked up, it's so opposite to the language of being exposed. See, what's guilt do? What's shame do? We feel exposed, don't we? And when you know you're you're feeling embarrassed and shameful. What do you do? You hide. You tuck yourself up so no one can see. You're hiding in that favourite spot in the house in hide-and-go-seek, waiting for the footsteps and hoping they walk past. And David's actually saying here, you actually get to hide in me. So who got exposed? Who got humiliated? Jesus. Let's look at the picture. When Jesus is crucified, part of the humiliation of that Roman death was not just that you were tortured, but you were exposed on a hill. You were raised up on a cross. You were stripped naked. What happened to your arms? Your arms were pinned wide. Why? When you're embarrassed and you're ashamed, what do your hands do? They cover, don't they? You want to tuck up. You want to hide because you're so ashamed. And look who was exposed because of you and me. He's exposed, is he not? He's not just exposed physically. He's exposed to the holiness of a righteous God who's now seeing the sins of the world on his son. He's exposed, so I no longer have to be exposed. And what do I get to do? I get to hide in the Father. What an amazing picture. So at Calvary, Jesus went through the most exposing of deaths so we would never, ever have to. What do you have to say to Jesus who's hanging on that cross when you think about your words and your thoughts and your actions and your motivations and your feelings, and that's just this week? What are you going to say to that saviour who's exposed for you because you did that? It's confronting, isn't it? 
But here's the great news. When we confess and we open ourselves to a holy God, we come to the, the hiding place that can never be exposed. And do you know what? That's why Romans 8 says there's no condemnation in Christ Jesus. Look at that language. No condemnation. I want to tell you tonight, confessions actually can be quite scary. It actually can be terrifying. And I want to say to you, genuine confession is probably tear-jerking. And it's confronting. Why is that? Because like Adam and Eve, I don't really want to admit I'm that bad. And culturally, I have a world telling me I'm what? Good. Oh, it's wonderful news. The world's telling me I'm great. The world's telling me it's all about you. The world's telling me do it for yourself, Andrew. Go for it. You're wonderful. In actual fact, I know different, right? I know different in my heart. And let me make you a promise from Scripture. The more we understand how much we are loved by Jesus, the more we understand the value of confession, the more joy we actually get. What a wonderful picture in verse 7 here. Songs of deliverance. Going from the grief of our sin to now singing, let me tell you a secret about my mentor and I. When people walk past my office, they hear us laughing most of the time. They think we're nuts. Why are we laughing? Why is there joy? Because genuine joy comes when you actually understand how much you've been forgiven from. Psalm 51 says it beautifully, and you know this well. Create in me a pure heart. Remember, this is David writing after Bathsheba, after Uriah's death. Oh God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me what? The joy of my salvation. You want joy? It's counterintuitive. It's countercultural. You want joy? You come to your Heavenly Father and you say, God, I'm so ashamed. I'm so ashamed that I know, I know it's possible that you've cleaned that mess right up. Well, tonight I can I ask you, do you know that joy? Do you know the joy of being released from sin because confession is part of that release and the promise of the gospel is it's free look at the language of 1 john 1 if we confess our sins what is he he's faithful and just and he will forgive us our sins and he will purify us from unrighteousness isn't that an amazing gift we have the promise that the god who hates sin will actually do that work through his son jesus it's an amazing promise and you know what? If you start confessing and you, you fix your confessional practice, you're in great company. That's what Isaiah did. That's what Jeremiah did. That's what Paul did when he got converted. That's what David did. This Psalm, Psalm 51. And I want to just point out to you, confession's not the list of the naughty things I've done. Oh, it's so much deeper than that. Because any list you read through in any night is going to be so inadequate. And it's going to get ritualistic. You're just going to list a bunch of things you've been naughty at this week. That's your ritual. Going back to Reformation Sunday, we're doing away with ritual. It's about your heart. I also have helped people, uh, listen to people, if they shared their testimony. They tell me about the confession that happened when they became a Christian. Wonderful. I ask, what's your confession like now? Tell me about your conversion story. Sure, I love hearing testimonies. I want to hear a testimony now as well. Confession needs to continue. It can't be ritualistic. So tonight, let me ask a couple of questions to finish. What are you concealing, or at least you think you're concealing, that you actually need to begin confessing to a holy God? Do you know the answer? I'm not surprised if you say, I don't know. I think that's a more healthy answer. Why don't you go and ask God? Why don't you come before the God that many of you I know love and say, Lord, 
I actually don't know. I, I got a fair list of the stuff I do know. Tell me the stuff I don't. God, give me your perspective on my sin, but be prepared. Be prepared to be completely confronted by that mess. What's God calling you to confess today? And do you know the great danger of confession in this manner? It might mean you have to go and do something. Because that spiritual confession, that confessing from that beautiful hiding place that we get, that David paints in verse 7, actually at times leads we now have to go and do something in real life. Because confession needs to what? Lead to a change of practice. Well, the promise is that confession will move from painful embarrassment and exposure to the freedom of joyful deliverance and those beautiful songs of deliverance that I get to sing and I get to be joyful because I actually know God has done that for me. And the hope of this psalm is that we take confession seriously and we'll rejoice with David because we will understand to a greater depth the incredible love of Jesus. Isn't that not a great story? Isn't that not something that we actually look forward to? My challenge for you, you do that hard work. You do that hard work by the power of the Holy Spirit. We can support each other in that. We can encourage each other in that. I'm going to take a moment and pray and then hand to David. And I think we're going to, we might even spend some time confessing together. God, we thank you for your scripture. If we're honest tonight, we're not 100% thankful about the thought of us being exposed. In fact, we're terrified by it. But I would ask you to give us a heart to bring the things that you already know before a holy, holy God. And God, I'd ask that you'd point out in our life the things that need to change we're not even aware of. God, what a light, what a ministry we would be. And God, this week, as we think about the events of Halloween and our culture's celebration of death, culture's celebration of evil, how incredible it could be if we're exhibiting joy and life to our very culture in this very neighbourhood as an outworking of us coming before you and confessing our sin. God, we come before you tonight knowing we need it and we're so grateful we're going to claim the promise of Scripture that, God, your Spirit's going to do that work in us. Amen.